tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 134. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And it's Play Expo London weekend. Oh yes, we're going to the capital and this is retro gaming in the capital, finally. How long has it been? Oh, we've been prepping this for at least six months. Yeah, and uh, I think we're still prepping it now, actually. <laughs> and it starts tomorrow. On the train on the way down. Yeah. But this is going to be, I mean, we've done so many of these, you know, big retro gaming shows, but I'm beyond excited for this one. I think we're doing about, what, seven panels over the weekend? Yeah, it's going to be a busy one, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a play when we finish. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm sure yeah. there'll be playtime after. So uh, maybe you're listening on the way to Play Expo this weekend. If you are coming along to uh, check out any of our panels and the show, uh, do come say hello when you get a spare second. And maybe you're a new listener on the way back. You may have discovered us, X. We do seem to get a bit of an influx after a play expo, don't we? When people have got the flyers and seen the panels and yeah. stuff that we do. So uh, if you are new to the show, I mean, the way it works is Ravi and I, uh, we do the show every week. 134 episodes now. Every single Friday we're out. We haven't yeah. missed one, have we? No, no, not yet. <laughs> it's come close. <laughs> I think we have a break at... New Year's, but that's all right. Yeah, we have one week <laughs> off a year. Yeah. Uh, but every week, I mean, the aim of this show is really because the world of retro gaming is a lot more active than a lot of people realize who are outside of it. And because when we originally started, you know, doing this podcast, we would have that discussion, how often should we do it? And at first we're like, can we fill a show every week with retro gaming news? But since then... Yeah, now we're cutting news because so much stuff is coming out. And what we like to do is we like to talk about the news here, but we also love to get a guest on and we love to... Kind of have it from the horse's mouth, you yeah. know. We we get the stories directly from them. And this week's guest, I'm just astonished that we've got him on. Yeah, well, this is David Brevik. And yeah, he was basically the co-founder and president of Blizzard North and uh, created the Diablo franchise, which, uh, as you know, is probably one of the greatest games in history, as I'm told by a lot of people. And you were a big fan, weren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I loved it, but I also loved the whole Warcraft series yeah. as well. And we all know how big that got. But David's currently got his own retro-style titles going on. So he's started his own company, now Greybeard Gaming, and he's gone <laughs> like back to designing, and he's kind of doing these cool retro indie titles. So we're going to explore that more as well. And that is so interesting as well, the fact that a lot of the guests that we talk to whose career kind of started in the 80s and 90s, and then they went on to other things. A lot of them are actually kind of getting back into retro now, aren't they? Yeah, totally. And also a lot of them are in similar circles. Like, we're going to talk about some companies like Atari and stuff that are related to the birth of Blizzard. You wouldn't have thought that, would you? Yeah, and the, um, yeah, the Lynx and uh, the Tremils, Clip Art. How does that tie yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is going to be a really interesting chat. David Brevik is our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast, and he'll be on in around 15 minutes from now. See, that's the thing. It's because we do get a guest on this show every week. And I was actually writing a bit about the show for uh, an article the other day. Uh, someone's kind of asking me about the podcast. And I did a bit of research. The video games industry, I mean, we, we've heard the talk that it's um, bigger than Hollywood and bigger than the music industry today. It's worth $100 billion worldwide. It's crazy because there's also so, so many kind of assumptions done on the video game industry and not much fact-checking. And it's like, 
that industry's huge. You know, yeah. it's yeah. I'm sure movies get kind of uh, scrutinised a lot more than games and stuff. Well, video games have only been around like what forty years. So the advantage from our perspective doing a podcast like this is a lot of the people involved in the creation are still around. Yeah, totally. You try and do a movie podcast, you know, you're not going to get someone on from hundred years ago. Uh, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one. So uh, yeah, do hang around. He's going to be really good. David Brevik is our special guest, and we have an entire archive. Um, 133 other guests that are similar stature, massive names that you can look back and check out the full archive on our website, theretrohour.com. Now, doing a weekly podcast um, is a bit of a challenge sometimes. There is a lot to do. We're very busy guys throughout the week doing this, aren't we? Just take a lot of time up. And also, there's a lot of expense involved as well. So we do always appreciate any help that we get with the show too. Now, we do have a little tip jar on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. That is where you can just go on there, throw in a couple of euros, a couple of dollars, a couple of pounds. Uh, if you enjoyed an episode, throw in a fiver or something, that's really appreciated. And just for making a donation of any amount, you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, this week, thank you so much to Robinson Technologies. Simon Pilgrim. Raymond Montalban. And Ian Pointier. Who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same. We accept their PayPal. You know, that'll convert pretty much anything, won't it? Um, cryptocurrency as well. If you're into that, you'll find it all on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our guest, David Brevik, we do need to talk about this. How many tweets have we had over the last week or so going... Have you heard about the Vega Plus? Yeah, the problem is the news was so fast moving with it as well. And also, it's been going on for so long. Well, uh, I remember talking about the Vega Plus when we started doing the show in January 2016. Yeah, so so what's the kind of news? Because I'd seen that um, they'd been a few delivered, yep. but they were subpar quality. They were... Uh, oh, God, there were some scratches on them. They had a bit of um, kind of cardboard... In a Sinclair logo on them. Uh, they weren't to the standard that people expected. And it seems like they've been stripped of the Sinclair brand. Yeah, it hasn't been a good week for them. Now, if you're not familiar with the project, I mean, it, it has been a talking point in retro gaming for well about three years ago, I think. They originally went up on uh, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, wasn't it? Yeah, because um, it's, it's, it's been quite... quite controversial, hasn't it? You know, yeah. people have received death threats. There's been... Um, uh, quite a nasty thing the whole the whole thing has <laughs> to be honest I think it's been a giant screw up hasn't it from yeah. start to finish really I mean this is if you haven't if you haven't come across this before it's a handheld recreation of the Sinclair Spectrum that of course was one of the most famous 8-bit computers back in the day uh, Clive Sinclair very popular home computer here in Britain especially and they came up with this concept of having a handheld Spectrum where you could essentially play all the old games load your own games onto it as well and it was uh, officially licensed uh, by Sky who yeah. currently own the Spectrum brand because they bought it from Amstrad. Yeah, they bought Amstrad, Amstrad who bought Sinclair, yeah. didn't they? <laughs> so it. yeah, gone yeah. through quite a few companies since then. But now because so much has gone wrong with the Vega Plus project, Sky have essentially said to them, look, you guys are not professional enough to be carrying one of our trademarks. So they've now been stripped of the Sinclair branding that um, is actually right on the front of the console. So I imagine that's going to cause even more of a problem for them. Now you think of this, though, they were originally meant to get delivered into backers' hands two years ago. Two years ago, and this is the problem with Kickstarters and crowdfunding. I, I wouldn't say Kickstarters, I'd say crowdfunding. And the thing with crowdfunding is, you know, you can get promised these kind of things and it might not always deliver and people put their hopes into things like these. So, you know, the way that they were presented, people were saying that they kind of didn't have any instruction manuals, charging cables. I've seen a lot of videos with people where they 
it wasn't even wrapped in bubble wrap. No. It was just in a like bit of paper or cardboard in a loose box. Well, there's a couple of retro listeners who've been um, you know putting stuff out on Twitter and YouTube this week. I know a Chinny Vision he did like an unboxing video, and at Lard's Lair really good YouTuber. He actually did like a, an unboxing and kind of review of it as well. And he scathed the build quality. I mean, you mentioned there about the boxes. It kind of got delivered in what looked like a, a shoebox that someone had hit with a hammer. <laughs> it was like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. But also, there, there is an upside, guys, which is if you do have one of these, bang it on eBay because I've been seeing them go for ridiculous prices. So if you're disappointed with your Vega Plus, put it on eBay and you could probably get twice the money and go out and buy to something decent. Yeah, because, I mean, it doesn't look like a very well-made system at all. I mean, looking at, there's an article here on the register, and some people are kind of speculating on there that maybe, you know, there was that much gone wrong with it because you look back and, I mean, there have been stuff like, you know, court cases, the mm. bailiffs have been called in, you know, all that had been going on with uh, RCL, this company behind it. Um, and some people are saying maybe they kind of just rushed and cobbled to something together. But I'd think, why bother, you know? I think the project was so tainted and so messed up that whatever they delivered in people's hands... You know, they couldn't get it right. Well, the things cause... I've seen about the things I've seen about this is, yeah, like you said, they've turned up with scratch screens. The screen flickers on it. The buttons are really hard to press. Yeah. There's only about forty games on it, if that. It's it really has got you know scathing reviews from what I've seen so far. And I mean, they they claim that four hundred of them have been put into the the hands of backers, but um, uh, you know, according to this article on the register, it's actually closer to fifty, they reckon. But have you seen the reviews? Yeah. Like, have you seen that some of the buttons don't even work? Yeah. With, with the kind of basic up and down and stuff like that, your D-pad doesn't work, your kind of product doesn't function, yeah. And some of these, I mean, you know, looking at it, it looks like the buttons are actually hand-painted on it. Yeah. And the, like, the Sinclair stripes, the Spectrum stripes on there, they're just a piece of paper put underneath, like, it's a like a house, screen. someone in the house just kind of sticking bits of paper and painting on a thing. But the, the thing is as well, like, the firmware says Sinclair on it, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I reckon these is going to be a real challenge to uh, remove any Sinclair branding right. on there. It, it's a death knell of it, surely. Yeah. It's, you, even if they have made all 4,000, which, you know, is still kind of in doubt. I was amazed that there was still news coming out on it. And to be honest, I would have just killed it ages ago if uh, with all that bad press if I was those guys. But well, I think the sad thing about it is it's um, the backers who really suffer here, isn't it? The it's people the, who've actually put the money into it's it. It's the backers, but yeah. it's also the developers, guys like Jonathan yeah. Cordwell that, you know, invested a lot of time into it and mm -hmm. really good specky developers that kind of been sailed down the river you yeah. know that said though i mean the market is kind of there i guess if someone does want to come along and do it properly who's got an established kind of name and history behind them yeah there's I a demand for it i think this is not going to i don't know taint other projects but i think i think this is just gonna keep happening with retro projects <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, you, you look it's... at it and it's kind of like a lot of these companies maybe don't realize quite what is involved with manufacturing something and getting it into customers hands it's a lot of work i imagine and a lot of them maybe a little wet, wet behind the ears didn't really know what's involved in it and maybe bite off more than they can chew yeah totally so um the, the vega plus story i think is it's far from over yet we'll be hearing more about it i'm sure but well, i reckon those consoles are going to be worth an absolute fortune for collectors you know people will pay silly money for that so all you disappointed backers <laughs> yeah especially if there's only 50 of them in the world i wonder how many are <laughs> going to be on sale at play expo this weekend <laughs> <laughs> right a back alley, yeah, I'll give you this, two grand. Yeah. There's only 49 of them more in the world. <laughs> now, Nintendo have been up to their old tricks again this week. Yeah, going around and uh, taking down <laughs> things, which which we know Nintendo love to do. 
Um, but this this is quite interesting because this emulator has uh, flown under the radar for quite a long time. It's been around since 2015, apparently. Yeah, so it's a Java-based emulator, which is pretty cool. So you can, you know, emulate Game Boy stuff within your browser. Yeah, JavaScript-based, yeah. So you can play Nintendo Game Boy games on your web browser. Yeah, yeah, basically. But what they say is they did they, the reason they got around it was because they didn't host any of the ROMs themselves. They uh, just hosted the emulator files. But mm. I don't know if that contained, you know, Nintendo BIOS or something. Yeah, like imagine the ROMs, I guess, would be Nintendo copyright. But what's interesting is though, that Nintendo is still fiercely defending the copyright of a system ROM that came out 30 years ago. <laughs> it's They don't like anyone else getting their hands on any of their trademarks or anything really Nintendo, do they using them in any way that's not officially authorised? Yeah. As well because, you know, the Switch hasn't even got a way to play all these games on there, their current console that's released. You could understand if they had, like, I mean, it probably is coming. Yeah, yeah. that's that's what I mean. They're saying, you know, they haven't got retro games uh, that are kind of on this system available at the moment, but they may be. And, yeah. and that's the whole thing, emulating something that's currently for sale. Yeah, that, that's going to cause problems. Is that the correct thing to do? But also, what is fair, fair use with a, a kind of system? And I guess it's Nintendo's definition of fair use. Well, I mean, there are, <laughs> there are websites that have, you know, massive archives of, like, ROMs and everything as well, and all the games and everything are on there. They kind of get left alone, which is a bit weird. But then you get something like this. Essentially, was just a... A kind of, I mean, maybe it did use a copyright Nintendo ROMs. Um, I imagine it did if it got took down by Nintendo. But again, all it was doing was providing a way for you to play games yeah. that you got elsewhere. And on the flip side of that, like companies like Sega, who haven't been knocking out fan-made games and mm. stuff, have now reaped the benefits with stuff like Sonic Mania, where they're actually working with these fan developers yeah. and bringing back the old franchise. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that game probably would never have existed if uh, Sega if had been no straight away to yeah, exactly. uh, Christian Whitehead, you know? Well, I do think sometimes Nintendo do, like, cut off their nose despite the face, don't they? It's a, a bit, bit like... Yeah. I mean, I can understand you've got to be protective about your trademarks and all that, but sometimes it kind of feels like Nintendo are still stuck in, like, the 80s. Totally. So that kind of I attitude. think the hardest thing in the world to probably upload on YouTube is Nintendo footage, yeah. right? You know, yeah. you could probably put some horrific stuff on there, but you couldn't put Nintendo footage. So. Well, we did a, um, a Let's Play, didn't we, Christmas on the Nintendo Switch? Yeah. That got demonetized about two days after because yeah, it showed yeah. Mario Kart and stuff. I mean, they didn't take it down, but they, yeah, Nintendo, who probably need the, like, you know, four pounds I'll make from the video. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the good thing is there are lots of ways that you can play Nintendo games if you want to, but um, I think until Nintendo get this online service on the Switch and you can actually play these games, it is a bit harsh kind of cutting off people's emulators if they want to play the classic games that they had back then and bring back some memories. Yeah. So Nintendo, they're a very nostalgic company for a lot of people. You know, they want to revisit the past and that's a nice Totally. Have you seen this uh, new Nintendo box where you can get kind of like Nintendo fan nostalgia merchandise sent to you every month? No, what's And you this? get a different, different types of stuff. I saw it online. It's like one of those loot crates. Yeah. But it's like a Nintendo fan special crate. Yeah. What do you get in there? Like games and consoles Just and stuff? like cards of like Mario and stuff, you know, <laughs> like a little sweet case that looks like a Game Boy or something. You're, you're really selling that well then, yeah? yeah. <laughs> now, you can tell I'm not a Nintendo fan guy. <laughs> Haven't you got a, or you're planning to get a Switch to... I've got a it. Wii U. Yeah, you got a, yeah, yeah. the Wii U is a great console. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I still yeah. use that, yeah. I've got every Nintendo... Hacked it to hell as well. well I've got every Nintendo, well, not, not handhelds, because there's a lot of them, a lot of variants of the Game Boy around, isn't there? But I've got every Nintendo home system apart from the virtual boy. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the um, N64 Mini so that I can play that on HDMI. That's what I want. Yeah, I'll definitely get one of those. I love the N64. 
Now, Amstrad have been making the headlines this week. This is hilarious because I found this and we retweeted it and the actual guys who are doing this uh, retweeted our tweet, which was really nice. And it reminds me a lot of you, Dan. So what this is is an Amstrad PC uh, for... For Hitching Festival, which is a, a small little festival. It's a music festival. Yeah, yeah, it's a music festival. And they've been using this old Amstrad and they've been printing the tickets still with it. Yeah, in for 25 like, years. Yeah, yeah, in like 2018. And it's great for them because it's really cheap. But also, they kind of uh, tweeted Lord Sugar, yeah. who's the old owner of Amstrad. To tell him how reliable his machine was. Yeah. And he replied as well, didn't he? Yeah, he actually <laughs> replied, which is well cool. So 25 years, they've worked out they've printed 50,000 tickets on this old Amstrad PCW 8512. Now, this was a machine that came out back in 1985. And in this article, um, there's actually a picture of it. It's a green screen monitor on it. It's got a dot matrix printer connected to it as well. And they've had this machine running Printing tickets out for people that want to go to their music festival, yeah, for 25 years. Which, yeah, they've actually worked out the cost of this as well. Lord Sugar, he replied and said, I can't comment if this is a world record, but it must be close. And it works out at 0.00798 pence per ticket. Yeah, and that's the whole point that I was saying about you. So last year you were saying, oh, I'm I'm really using all this printer income. Yeah. And then you found your old Amiga, and what, what was the plan? Well, yeah, originally I had a inkjet printer hooked yeah. up to my PC, wireless printer. And for some reason, I mean, I don't print a lot of stuff. And <laughs> I'd, I'd hooked it up, printed something out, put it away for a couple of months, put it back out again, and the ink had run out. And you go to like in you know, a Staples or something, talking 40 quid for ink. Yeah, for yeah, I've printer. got a HP and it's exactly the same. Yeah. More than the printer normally, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so then it, my, my missus is doing like a degree at the moment, uh, an online degree. She had to print out some stuff. Again, printed it a bit. We didn't use it for a couple of weeks. Right out of ink again, dried up or something, I don't know. So I thought, I've got this Amiga like, printer that I used to use, a Canon bubble jet printer. Got it out of the attic at my parents' place. Turns out, ink for it is really cheap on eBay. I managed to get something like 50 ink cartridges for 50 quid. Wow. <laughs> so to print letters and all that, it's fine though. Yeah, for monochrome stuff yeah. as well, yeah. But the big use for it was when I got married last year. Now for my, uh, my table... You know, the names on the tables where people are going to sit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was trying to do that on my modern printer. So it's these tiny little cards, and I had to print right in the middle of them. And trying to do that, we've got a laser printer now. Impossible to try and get it lined up. You try sticking it on a bit of A4 and moving it around and all that. Then I thought, oh, I wonder if that kind of bubble jet can do it. Fired up final right in 97 on my Amiga. Loaded it through. You can actually get the head directly where you want to print it. Hit print, and it come out. There you Save go. Save the day. And the thing is, it's so cheap. Like... Yeah. Guys, I recommend using dot matrix printers and stuff for all your just general stuff. And it it can be like 0.1p a sheet or something. Well, weirdly enough, we were in, because um, we've been going through a mortgage process recently, and we were in the bank the other week, and like my missus needed some bank statements printed out. And they print them out in a dot matrix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, because he said it's cheap. Yeah, you know, the, that's it. It's just a ribbon. And I mean, you can actually re-ink. And those ink ribbon. cartridges are absolutely everywhere. You yeah. know, the old ones, people have supplies of like 60, 70. And then if they dry up, you just put a bit of WD-40 on them or spray them again. It's like sorted. So Yeah. And I do love the sound of an old dot matrix as well. Oh, uh, totally. But there, look at that Amstrad machine still kicking. Keep it there for another 25 years. I'm sure it'll <laughs> keep going. Now, this is um, a really, really interesting company who you don't hear all that much about. Probably the most groundbreaking dead company in Silicon Valley. And we're getting a movie about General Magic. Yeah, so General Magic were kind of within Apple Computer. They, they, they were a company based there. And the thing about General Magic is we've had a lot of films about um, 
you know, Steve Jobs. Yeah, Apple, We've Microsoft. Yeah. Endless films about Steve Jobs, but we haven't had the kind of people that invented the emojis, the guys that built the internet. And this film, I was just looking at a section of it, and they had like the CTO of Twit sitting with the guy who made Google Circles next to the engineering VP of eBay, Blackberry and Samsung, also head of speech recognition. It's pretty much... A hardware designer of the iPod and the iPhone. Yeah, it's like the old Apple techs, you know, the absolute legendary guys that originally did the stuff with all these fresh-faced young guys Mm. and they're creating the internet. Like, some of the projects that came out of this, you know, Safari. Yeah. Like, they've, they've got the VP of Google there. There's a founder of Nest sitting with the iPhone and the iPod hardware designer. So... That's what all these guys went on to after General Magic, isn't it? But they did the foundations of what essentially became all of those projects while they were working there between 1990 and 2002. Yeah. And uh, it was was kind of insane because General Magic were doing stuff like, uh, you know, handheld wireless personal communicators. You you remember the Newton as well? Yeah, Uh, yeah. yeah, there's a big connection with the Newton there. But they also had full designs for emojis, user interfaces, all of this kind of stuff that's incredibly ahead of its time and kind of laid the foundation for the uh, modern internet, really. Well, I mean, there is a quote in this movie trailer, which um, I will put in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And the trailer's about two and a half minutes long. Um, It's going to be a full-length documentary movie, isn't it, all about General Magic? But there's a quote right at the end of it where they're having a discussion and they say, you know, would Android today exist without General Magic? And they say, no. Yeah, totally. And and that's the thing. It wasn't Steve Jobs that did it all. Yeah. You know, there was lots of people around him, but all that innovation was also coming from Apple, which is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And having that hooked up with the um, Next. Yeah. And all it, of that, it all kind of ties together, doesn't it, it? It's crazy how everything ties together. And it's awesome to see like companies like this who did... You know, maybe they weren't the most like front-facing, the ones getting all the media coverage at the time and everything, but these were the guys kind of behind the scenes in the lab working on all this technology that today is used everywhere. And it's good to see them getting recognition and a full movie made about them as well. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because you think in your head, like, where did eBay come from? Or where did, you know... Is there a clip in there of, like, essentially eBay, like, is a guy who's had his PC at a desk... On a desk, just with loads of checks. And he's just... And they're probably walking by going, what the hell is he doing no, auction site, <laughs> and he's like, oh, "We got another one in." I remember that actually. My friend's dad was like, "Oh, I'm I'm selling my violin on this on the internet," and we're like, "Are you mad?" <laughs> like that. No, no one's going like, to buy it. I've got to send a check off to this place. It's this thing called eBay. I was like, what? "Yeah, before PayPal, you have yeah, to send a yeah. check in the post." My word. So uh, yeah, this is going to be a really interesting documentary. I, mean, I love a good nerdy computer documentary movie. Anyway, they're always really good. That's it, and I think this one's going to be good because it's going to really focus on the tech and yeah. stuff like chip design. You know, modern modems, uh, multimedia email, streaming TV, e-commerce, rather than. The drama behind Steve Jobs. There's been enough of them movies over the last couple of years. Aston Kutcher. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, that wasn't the best one. No. So if you're doing a find out more about that, watch our trailer and everything else that we talked about in this week's show. uh, We always put the stories that we talk about in our show notes. You don't have to Google around. We do it all for you. And you'll find those at theretrohour.com. Right then, it's time for the main event. This week's special guest, we're going to get really, really deep. Behind the scenes of Blizzard North, the Diablo franchise, how... Clippart is involved in this story as well. (laughs) The Tremils, loads of stuff in this interview. Really good. David Brevik is this week's special guest. 
to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for this week's very special guest. It is our pleasure to welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, David Brevik. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we are going to get into some uh, really cool stories, I'm sure, about Blizzard North, Diablo. Uh, but before we get into all that, I mean, it's always nice to kind of find out where this uh, adventure started for you in the crazy world of video games and computers. I mean, what was kind of your first experience with computers and video games? Where did it all begin? The very first time that I ever uh, played a video game was Pong, <laughs> which, you know, really dates me. But the uh, uh, that was the very first video game machine that I ever that I ever played. Even I had not played an arcade machine before that. So the, like a home version of Pong was the very first one. But really the kind of the desire and and the uh, the the magic really started to happen right when I started playing Space Invaders in the arcades as you know, it wasn't really at an arcade. It was like at a sandwich shop down the street from me. Uh, but uh, and then uh, the Atari 2600. That, that's when I, you know, the passion for video games really grew. So was that your kind of first home console then after the Pong machine, the uh, Atari? Yeah, Atari 2600 was my first home machine. Uh, and then uh, my dad, I, I was fortunate enough that my dad ended up buying an Apple II Plus really early. I don't know, that was maybe like 78 or 79, somewhere somewhere right in that <laughs> that time frame. I can't quite recall. And uh and that's you know then then I started teaching myself to program, and that's that's where the passion for programming really came. Well, did that kind of drastically change your view of computers being able to program instead of just playing the games on it? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, you know, I was a game nut. I just, I loved games all you know, and I couldn't really buy games because i was a kid so <laughs> and my parents would buy a limited amount of games like i could get a, a game for like my birthday or christmas or something like that but, but it wasn't like i was just you know getting a game a week or something uh and uh so there were just very limited times where and so i could though like earn enough allowance and stuff to go and buy a magazine and uh and the magazine would have games in it that you could type in and, and, you know, it would have the complete program listing uh, that you could type in in AppleSoft Basic and, uh, and, and play the games. So that was really like one of the ways that I started to learn how to program and learned uh, and really developed a passion for gaming was, uh, was copying these, these, uh, these, this code out of magazines. I remember doing that as well, and like you know, probably ninety percent of the time they wouldn't run first time. You had to go oh, back. Yeah. Absolutely, and it was it, it was more, it was more like nearly a hundred percent for me, mainly because there were uh, a, a lot of times there were two big problems. One was that the data entry was really difficult because it, it would end up having like a series of just uh, numbers that you would have to put in. And it was like, you know, 234 comma, you know, uh, 36 comma 19, et cetera. And then like this long chain of like, let's say 100 plus numbers that you would have to type in because it would make all these tables and sprites and stuff out of this data. And uh, and like so I inevitably had typos in those the, that little sequence of all those numbers. And then two, oftentimes the uh, the the program itself just had bugs so like they would just print these <laughs> these uh listings uh, with bugs in them in the magazine so i became very actually very good at debugging 
uh, not only applications, but debugging my typos uh, during that time. And I, and I, you know, I, I still use a lot of those skills to this day. I'm, I'm very good at debugging things and I can narrow them down quickly because of all that experience I had when I was a kid. Well, how did uh, reading about Richard Garriott lead you to want a career in gaming? So there was an article, uh, and I don't really remember how I came across it because I wasn't really an avid reader of this magazine, but the, there, uh, this kind of newspaper uh, magazine, whatever you want to call it, that was kind of at the checkout counter called the National Enquirer, which is uh, kind of a you know tabloid before tabloids. Really, <laughs> It was like the first tabloid, I would guess. Uh, and there was an article in there uh, in which Richard Garriott said that he had made – $100,000 a year making video games. And uh, and I said, oh, my God, if you can make money making video games. And so I was like, it, it, dawned, it never even considered it a, you know, a career possibility or never even thought about doing it for a living until I saw that, oh, my God, people actually, you know, make, I mean, it made total sense, but I never really put it together. And the fact is that Hey, a hundred thousand dollars back in whatever this was, nineteen eighty or something, was like, oh, that was an amazing salary, and uh, and so uh, you know, I said, wow, if that that's true, then then that's definitely what I want to do with my life because I just love making games and and working on them. So uh, if I can make money too, that was that's all that I could dream. Well, you're working for a a clip art company as well, and I think you know, often today people kind of forget just how important clip art was especially before the internet was like you know prevalent everywhere i remember getting floppy disks with clip art on you'd use it in like your presentations or your schoolwork. uh what exactly did you do there uh yes that is that is true uh well the clip art company existed like i came on board after they had done several uh uh, you know, volumes of, of clip art and they did all the things that you're just talking about, like images of, I don't know, maps for presentations or flags or, you know, little, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever you would put in newsletters or presentations or whatever. And, uh, and that business was not going very well. They had like overproduced a, a, a billion of, you know, I don't know if it was a billion, but it, it was a lot. They, they way overproduced the amount of CDs. They weren't selling as many of that. So they ate up all of their costs in manufacturing these CDs, which cost, let's say, I don't remember, like two bucks or to make a CD or something like that. And so they had spent thousands and thousands of dollars on this and they weren't selling any. Uh, they were selling slowly, I should say. And, uh, and, so they were kind of at a loss with the business. It was in, in kind of dire straits. And they had all of these artists and said, well, if we get a programmer, we might be able to use these artists to make a game. So they, their, the, the owner, his family knew the Tremils who owned, it, owned Atari at the time. And through that connection, they were able to get an Atari uh, contract to do an Atari game uh, on the Atari Lynx, which was a handheld uh, machine and uh, so they needed the programmer and got me and hired me to be the programmer and then I worked with other artists there to uh, to create my my first game uh, but the company again was not going very well and it eventually went out of business but the writing was on the wall pretty early uh, 
for me because uh, my paychecks started bouncing about four months in. So, uh, uh, you know, I knew it was time to kind of start looking for a new job pretty quickly. Uh, uh, and and I left there pro- before I finished the project. But the project eventually got released. It was a game called Gordo 106. And you can find obscure things about it on the Internet uh, every now and then. People speed running it or something weird. This Anyway, that's that's my first published game, technically, even though I wasn't there for for finaling it. And the Lynx was, I mean, everyone talks about the Game Boy and what a revolution that was, but the Lynx was kind of, it was streets ahead of it in terms of the power of the system as well. I mean, what did you think of the the Lynx hardware? The Lynx hardware was amazing. It was way, way, way ahead of its time because at the time it was, uh, you know, Game Boy is what it was competing against pretty much, but uh, it was color and it had like, you could... uh, you know, uh, do things like adjust scan lines and like all sorts of had all sorts of easy sprite things. And it was easy to the processor was really easy to program on. And uh, so everything about it was vastly superior to uh, the technology in the Game Boy. They just didn't have any support or games or things like that, which has been the story of Atari. Uh, ever since the 2600 or, you know, they've, 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 even though may, they may have great hardware, they just never got the support or the, uh, the IP that they needed to make a successful, uh, gaming company. Because I know it was that Dave Needle and RJ Michael, the guys who invented the Amiga pretty much went on to work on the links, didn't they? Like the Correct. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. That, uh, the, and I was going to mention the Amiga, just like Amiga was way out of its time in a lot of ways. Uh, the same was with the Atari Lynx. It was, it was incredible. Well, how did this lead to you getting work with Iguana, and uh, what were you first doing there? So uh, at Iguana, I uh, I became technical director there, but the uh, but I started working. You know, I was working here at this clip art company called FM Waves, and and it was not going well. And so I started seeking for new employment. And there was this was like really early, like pre-internet times. Uh, so we would like go to the newspaper to <laughs> find job listings. And there was a, uh, a job uh, kind of down near where I was living in San Jose. And uh, and uh, so I went over there and interviewed and it was a little bit of a uh, absent minded professor. I like I kept they wanted to hire somebody with experience. And I had a little bit of experience, but it was, you know, just working on this one product. And I interviewed there probably four times. And every time I went to go interview them and show them the project that I had been working on and I technically knew what I was doing, like I would forget something. I would forget a, a cable or something and I couldn't show the stuff off. Like I kept forgetting something and they were like, oh my God, this guy seems really great, but he seems a little bit like that absent-minded professor. <laughs> and uh, and so eventually I, uh, you know, I got everything together and then they hired me. Uh, and so I left uh, FM Waves and and joined Iguana Entertainment, and uh, and the very first project I did there was a conversion of an arcade machine, uh, uh, NFL, uh, it's super super high impact football, kind of a American football uh, conversion from it was kind of like NBA Jam styled football uh, is about the best way to describe it. And it was a precursor to NBA Jam, and uh, and so I, I converted that arcade machine into uh, to the Sega Genesis in three months. And uh, they were doing a lot of contracts for Acclaim, were they? Correct. This was a contract with Acclaim at the time. And uh, this was one of their first contracts with Acclaim. Uh, and Acclaim was super impressed with the job that we had done. It was like one of the very first projects that they had ever had that was uh, 
on time and on budget. Like, you know, and then there was also the Super Nintendo conversion of the of the of the uh, arcade as well. And that development company was like floundering. It was not. It was not. They they were way behind our uh, our version, and so uh, they uh, you know they, they we looked even better uh, because of of the other dev kind of floundering and and us getting it done on time. So. That really led to a, a quite a bit and a lengthy relationship between Iguana and Acclaim. And I heard you accidentally turned down Mortal Kombat. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had uh, done uh, this arcade machine, uh, the super high impact football conversion, and Acclaim's like, well, this is really great. Uh, you know, you guys want some more work. We got lots of work that we would love to give you. And, uh, and so we said, yeah, sure, we're interested in more work. And so the president of Iguana, a guy named Jeff Spangenberg and myself, said, well, we got this new arcade machine. Uh, why don't you go take a look at it? So we went and we played it. And I was like, oh, man, this, this game is great. Uh, this is going to be a big hit. Uh, you know, I think we should take this job and stuff. And Jeff's like, nah, I don't know, man. I, I, this game seems too quirky. This is, you know, it's too weird. Uh, I just think it's, you know, it's kind of silly with all the, you know, gore and stuff like that. And and so he, he eventually turned that down, which was uh, uh, Mortal Kombat. And then, uh, it, you know, he totally regrets that, obviously. And then uh, and then uh, later they came back and said, so we got another arcade machine that you should try. And so we went and played that one. And uh and that was NBA Jam. And I said, oh, yeah, this is a really great game. This is also going to be a really big hit. And uh, he said, OK, well, we're not turning this one down. And so we took the, the contract to do NBA Jam. Well, how did this kind of close relationship with Acclaim make you want to start your own company and kind of break free of the uh, Iguana? The reason I left Iguana was because they moved the company from the San Francisco Bay Area to uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, I didn't want to <laughs> travel to te- I didn't want to move to Texas. Uh, and so because I had done uh, some work on, uh, you know, for a claim uh, doing the NBA jam work, started work on that as well as doing the super high impact football. And also at Iguana had made this game called Arrow the Acrobat for Sunsoft. I was able to kind of get. Uh, some work for hire from a couple of different companies, from Sunsoft and from Acclaim, and that provided us with the you know the contracts to uh, to to do extra development work. So I could create a development company, and so I asked two of the artists that uh, that I had worked with at um, at the FM Waves Clip Art Company if they wanted to join me and start a start our own company, our own development company, and make games with just, just the three of us, or maybe we need more, but start out with the three of us. And, uh, and they said, yes. And that, that was Max and Eric Schaefer, the brothers that, uh, I had met at the clip art company and myself. And we started, uh, our own development company called Condor, uh, and, uh, Iguana moved to Texas and, and we got the contracts to do a, uh, uh, game for Sunsoft called Justice League Task Force, which is a fighting game starring the DC super superheroes and uh, and as well as uh, from a claim we were able to get a quarterback club a, uh, a NFL football game on the Game Boy and Game Gear. So we were able to get you know three contracts to do work uh, right off the bat. So that uh, that made the transition easy to create our own company as well as uh, you know kept me in the Bay Area. Well, I was reading uh, kind of about Justice League Task Force and the whole CES story 
uh, with silicon <laughs> yeah. and synapse. Could you uh, tell us about that? Because that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we were offered uh, several different jobs uh, from Sunsoft. They wanted us to do the Aerosmith game, but uh, we were not interested in doing the Aerosmith. They had like several choices, and one of them they they kept trying to push this Aerosmith game, and and we decided not to do it. Uh, instead, we really wanted to do this. DC superhero game, which was a kind of a Street Fighter clone, but with the DC superheroes, and uh, and they said, okay, well, but you, you you know we're just making it on the Genesis, and we said that's fine. We 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 didn't need you know that was enough work for us, uh, and so we went about making the Genesis version of this uh, of this product, and. Uh, and then we sh- went to we would go to these trade shows. Uh, this was before E3 existed. We would go to the Consumer Electronics Show, which is this gigantic uh, trade show here in the U.S. where they have everything from car stereos, TVs, refrigerators, and video games were a section of this gigantic show. And uh, and so we would just have our little video game setups right next to, you know, the the car stereos as they blew us out and their sound was way louder than our sound. Uh, And uh, we would. And so we showed up at the trade show and lo and behold, somebody else is making the Super Nintendo version of this game. It wasn't that they weren't making the Super Nintendo version. It just was a different developer had the contract. And we didn't know that another version of the game was being developed, and we didn't know that they uh, that uh, like we had never spoke to the other developer or like had any kind of you know shared any notes or anything like that. You know, there was no no idea that this other version exists. And same for them; they didn't know that that the Genesis version was being created. And we show up at the show, and the games are kind of strangely similar, which is. <laughs> which was bizarre. I mean, like even some of the artwork and things like that and the locations and stuff that we chose were similar to theirs. Our moves were kind of this very similar to each other and, and whatnot. So uh, we kind of just got to talking to them and they're this development company called Silicon and Synapse. And, uh, and uh, we kind of hit it off with them. We had a good time and they're like, Oh yeah, we're all, well, we're, we're doing this work for hire stuff, but we really want to make PC games and uh, and so we've got a PC game that we're kind of, you know, showing off behind closed doors right now. And did you want to see it? And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And we went to go look at it. And uh, that game uh, was Warcraft <laughs> and uh, and and it looked great. And so I kept in touch with them. And as we got closer, they said, oh, yeah, we you know, in the fall, they said, yeah, we sold our company uh, to this to a different company, we changed our name to Blizzard, and we're going to make you know mainly PC games. And here is a uh, here's our first offering. I said, well, if you want anybody to test, you know, we're we got eager people here that would love to give it a try. And so they sent us a bunch of uh, you know they sent us a build or whatever, and we gave them feedback and and really kind of kept in touch with them. And that that led to the kind of relationship between uh, between Condor, which became Blizzard North, and uh, and and Blizzard Entertainment. It's weird how the stars align sometimes, though, isn't it? It's yeah. bizarre. I mean, it's so strange if you think about all of the like twists and turns in my career that led to the creation of what eventually became Diablo. Like the the way that this, like all of these things, kind of aligned is is bizarre. The fact that 
the owner of Iguana got married and moved to Texas. Like then I created a development studio. Uh, the, the fact that we were both working on these projects for this, this publisher that didn't, and we show up and the games are similar and we get to talking and you know, that leads to this relationship with, which, you know, leads to Diablo and like all of these weird coincidences that, that happen to exist to lead to the road of the creation of Diablo. And was it true that they were in the kind of world of edutainment before they did? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Davidson and Associates, the company that bought them, was uh, was kind of the the leader in ed- educational entertainment software, and they were they were number one. So they were kind of branching out. Uh, they're you know they kind of dominated that market, and their growth potential then was okay. Well, why don't we just make traditional games as well as as uh, as these as educational games. And, uh, and so they bought this developer Silicon and Synapse because they had gone and, uh, created some games that started winning awards like uh, rock and roll racing and some other, uh, uh, games that they had made that. So they were kind of a standout developer and they said, well, we'll acquire these and make them the cornerstone of, uh, of this new division of ours, uh, uh that was focused on entertainment. I love the fact that two of the biggest game franchises in history came out of edutainment and clip art, essentially. That's like, it's, crazy. <laughs> yes, it's, it's strange. So what was it like the first time you saw Warcraft 1? Oh, my initial impressions were this game looked fantastic. It was right up my alley. I mean, it, it was this was, uh, you know, this was very early RTS time. Uh, you know, it was there. There was only one other game that you could call maybe an RTS, which was Dune 2000. But uh, so here was kind of a fantasy version. Uh, so I love that it was fantasy. I love the orcs versus humans kind of take on it. And uh, and I loved kind of the real time strategy building stuff. And uh, I thought it looked great. And the graphics, you know, were awesome. And it uh, the uh, sound was fantastic and all these things. So, it, you know, my first impressions where I was super impressed with what they were making, you know, and that really uh kept the line of communication open between the two of us. Like we kept going back and forth and talking, uh, and, uh, and talking about that game kind of brought us together. And, uh, after they had finished, uh, you know, when we were in the fall and we were kind of communicating it back and forth and talking about Warcraft, we said, well, we got a great PC game idea that we've pitched to a lot of people, but nobody will listen to us because RPGs are dead. And, uh, they said, well, uh, you know, we're looking for more companies that, you know, our directive is we've got to make more games. That's what we've been, you know, we were bought to make a bigger division. So if you guys have a game idea that we like, we'll, we'd love to listen to it. So after we finish Warcraft one, we'll, uh, we'll, um, come out and you can, you can pitch us your game. So they finished Warcraft in December and then in January they came out and, uh, we, pitched them Diablo uh, in, uh, in in January, and they loved the game idea right away, which was great because we had gotten rejected so many times before that with our with our uh, concept that, uh, you know, I knew, I, I just kind of had a gut feeling that this was going to be a good process and that, uh, and that uh, we were going to, uh, you know, we got along with these guys really well, and so it was like, it seemed like this was a natural fit and and they liked us, and we liked them, and they liked our game idea, and it just felt like the right kind of choice. 
So how controversial was the uh, real-time phone call <laughs> you got and uh, kind of how divided was the office whether we should uh, whether you should have a turn-based Diablo or a real-time version? Right, yeah, it was uh it was incredibly controversial mainly because I, of me. Uh <laughs> uh and so I I I loved the turn-based feel that we had. Uh, not only that we had, but the, these types of games had, like Rogue and Morian Angband, things like that, uh, NetHack. The, all of these games had it, really great turn-based mechanics and tension, and I wanted to capture that uh, with Diablo. And uh, so they called up and Blizzard South, you know, and they had done kind of this, hey, we're taking strategy stuff, we're making it real-time. We think that you should do the same thing with Diablo, take it, you know, from this turn-based thing to a real-time thing. And we were doing our, our – it was turn-based, but it was kind of a complicated turn-based. Like it wasn't my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. It was it, – different turns took different amount of times. We can call it, you know, tenths of a second or you can call it frames or whatever you want, but like – you know, moving diagonally took 1.4 seconds and horizontally or vertically took one second and, uh, and swinging your sword may only take like 0.2 seconds or whatever it was, you know? And the, so the, it was turn-based, but it was kind of like, it, there was different weights to the, the actions. Uh, and they said, well, you know, it's really, I, I, we really think that you should try it. We think that, uh, it'll make a big difference. And, and I just really didn't want to lose the uh, that kind of tension. There was nothing more tense uh, in my life than the experience of doing this turn-based combat where I've been playing this character. All of these games, these Rogue and Morian Angband stuff were uh, – were you know permadeath games so you you died in the game your character died in the game that was it the game was over and you lost everything and so uh you know making these turns and you're getting down to the end you find yourself in a stuck situation you're like oh my god i'm running out of time this is a disaster what do i do uh and uh you know you would get up from the computer you'd walk around the lab it's like Oh my God, I'm going to lose like this two weeks of work on this character. It's the highest level I've ever gotten. I can't believe this. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in deep, deep doo-doo at this point. And the, the, uh, and so you would plan out all of these things and look at your equipment. And like, there was this intense period of time where you're kind of agonizing over which moves you were going to do. And that, that's, that inevitably you died. Uh, you know, it was very sad and your character was deleted and you didn't play for three days as you calmed down and then you come back and play again. Uh, but I loved that feeling. I loved the intensity of that, of that. And I thought real time is just not going to have that, right? You're not going to have this moment where you're like, Oh my God, I'm about to lose everything here. Uh, I've got to, I've got to really think this out. And, uh, is there anything I can do to kind of give myself the best odds I can of, of succeeding? And so I didn't want to lose that kind of spirit. And, and so I was very adamant that I did not want to do this. And so we started talking about it as, as a group and the office and the, you know, people started hearing more and more about it. And, and everybody, pretty much everybody in the entire office was in favor of changing it into real time or at least giving it a try. Uh, 
And, uh, and eventually it, you know, I was, I was still pretty stubborn about the entire thing, but I was democratic. And so we got together in the, in the kitchen and, and everybody got a vote and we voted whether or not that we wanted it to be real time, uh, or, or turn-based. And, uh, and the vote was overwhelming 80% plus of (laughs) people that wanted it to change to, uh, real time. And so I said, okay, well, we'll give it a try. Uh, and then so I called up Blizzard, and we were still kind of work for hire at this point. You know, they we had signed the contract to do Diablo, and we weren't Blizzard North at the time. And and uh, and said, well, yeah, we can we can do this, but it's going to take a lot, a lot of time and work and stuff. And so we need a little extra money to to make this <laughs> massive change and so they agreed to a to a little bit more money and uh and I said okay well, we'll do that and so uh we I came in uh, the office on Friday and I said okay I'm going to we're going to make this big change everybody come back everybody go home we'll come back on Monday and we'll have it uh we'll have it running and so uh, uh, or at least have a prototype or whatever, but there's nothing for anybody can do while I make this massive change. So everybody left and then, and then I completed the work in like an afternoon in a couple hours and, uh, and changed it from real, from, from turn-based to real time. And, and again, I can, I, I've said this many times, but I can, I can still picture it. It's like one of the most clear moments of my career where I, uh, I was playing this warrior and I clicked on a skeleton and I walked over, he like walked over and he bashed the skeleton. As soon as I, you know, I clicked, he walked over and he smashed the skeleton and it felt so good. I was like, oh my God, it was, <laughs> it was, it was incredible. The sensation, the experience was, again, it was like, you know, the heavens parted and the angels sang <laughs> and like the light shone down into the office kind of thing. I mean, it was like, oh, oh my God, this is just so incredible. It was it was uh, it was just night and day. Obviously, how could I have ever thought <laughs> that turn base was the right thing? I instantly had flipped. It was obvious that this was going to be a winner. This was something magical, and uh, and so the, from that moment on, we we never looked back. And and uh, kind of changing it from turn base to real time was uh, was just an incredible. <laughs> Uh, stroke of luck and genius that uh, that that made it uh, something that makes Diablo stand out forever. Well, even when Diablo, you know, was in development generally, I mean, the technology landscape was changing so much around that time in the mid nineties. Even the launch of like Windows ninety five, new graphics cards seemed to come out that were like ten times better than the week before. Every couple of weeks, I mean, did yeah. the the rate of technology change at the time influence your development? Yes, absolutely. There were all sorts of things that did. One is that when we started out, it was going to be DOS, uh, and we changed to Windows. 95 came out, and we changed to Windows and DirectX. Uh, so we, you know, gone were the days of DOS and you having to, you know, use extended or expanded memory and like what IRQ is your sound card on and like all of these like nightmares that was almost impossible to install anything or play a game on the PC. And so like getting rid of all of those things and getting rid of like there were 87 million different standards for, for video cards and how they access their memories and things like that. So unifying that with DirectX was just incredible. Uh, and uh, that really, that really made a huge difference. Uh, so that technology was, was big. And then also, uh, the internet really was becoming the full fledged internet and people starting to play games over the internet. And we thought about, uh, at the time, Hey, 
what would be really cool, us as gamers, is uh, thinking it would be really cool if we could not just play like a LAN game, because we had done some LAN stuff with uh, with Warcraft 1 and Warcraft 2, but it would be really cool to be able to connect with my friends all over the U.S. Uh, or world uh, and, and play together. Uh, and to do that right out of the box so that you didn't have to get on some kind of weird service because there are services popping up where you could you could match make with other people around the world or whatever. But we wanted that experience to be right, something built into the game. And uh, so we invented Battle.net and, uh, and created Diablo, uh, made Diablo into a multiplayer game using this Battle.net technology about six months before the, the game shipped. And it turned out to be, you know, the advent of the, this, uh, you know, internet play and direct uh, DirectX and Windows and like all of these kind of things were kind of we were right on the kind of cutting edge of technology at the time. Well, uh, the Hellfire expansion came out, which was um, with Sierra. And I know that's a very uh, kind of love it or hate it kind of expansion. Um, what was the story with that and how did you feel about it? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I was very displeased. Uh, I, I, it came out because we'd finished Diablo and we were said, well, we're, I think we're going to work on Diablo two because it was, you know, there was so much cheating with Diablo one. We really wanted to fix that. And there were some other things that we, that we were like, we can really improve upon this product. And so we went on to go, uh, start working on Diablo two and, and improve what we thought were some of the flaws with Diablo one. And, uh, and meanwhile, the publisher, you know, our owners, uh, at the time they originally started out to be Davidson associates, but then this, uh, other company called CUC ended up buying both, uh, uh, both Davidson associates, which owned us blizzard as well as Sierra online at the same time, like nearly like within days of each other, they had bought bought both of these uh, companies and made this giant entertainment and educational entertainment company. Uh, and and so we were kind of Sierra Online and Blizzard were the same company for a little while. Uh, and so they the publishers, the people at CUC said, hey, you guys have really hit it out of the park with this Diablo thing. Uh, we would love to sell an expansion. Uh, but, you know, you guys, how do you guys feel about that? And we're like, well, we're too busy working on Diablo to do an expansion. They said, well, we've got teams that would that would make a Diablo expansion over at Sierra that aren't working on anything right now. How would you guys feel about them doing an expansion? We said, well, OK, that sounds fine uh but we've got to have like a lot of input and a lot of creative control and things like that final says and all that stuff yeah 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 okay fine and uh and so they sent us uh they went on working on it we got a producer here uh at blizzard north that was it was his job to kind of make sure that they were you know getting our feedback and doing the changes that we were supposed to be that we wanted and et cetera et cetera and and it wasn't really happening. Uh, they weren't making the changes that we were requesting, and they just kept doing their thing. And Sierra and uh, CUC and Sierra or whatever ended up, you know, publishing it without my permission when I didn't feel it was ready, nor did it keep really uh, in complete theme with the Diablo universe that we had created. And 
and they released it anyway because they wanted to make some money. So they uh, they had numbers to meet, and rather than do our changes, they decided to release it. So I was very upset about this, uh, and uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people <laughs> lost jobs and stuff over it. Uh, it was uh, it was a it was a bad fight, uh, and in the end. It never really came out to be the way that I wanted it to be, and uh, and and ever since that, we decided we would never do a request for the uh, for the publisher again. Uh, that was just about money. It was kind of a, a tough lesson learned. Yeah, because uh, one thing that I looked at as well was the uh, Warcraft Adventures, and uh, that was actually uh, co-developed by the Animation Magic guys who did those infamous CDI Zelda games. Um, w- right. Why did you kind of decide to can that? Was it to keep the standard of Warcraft quite high? Yeah, that was basically uh, you know we had been working on it and uh, and. They had designed it, and they, they were kind of doing a good job or whatever. Everything was going well, except for the game just was not very good. It was, you know, it was not – the story was interesting, but the quality level, there was nothing there there. Like, it was a very standard, you know, adventure game, and there was nothing revolutionary or different or I- exceptional about it. It was just kind of a – middle of the road slash slightly below that adventure game uh and which there was generically 8000 of these things at the time and it didn't really do anything to kind of make it stand out from and so one of the things i had talked about with alan myself many times was that uh one of the things that we kind of decided early was that there are kind of different roads that we can go as a as a game developer uh and as a as a company but the road that I want to take is I want to be the Ferrari of video, the video game industry. I don't want to be the GM of, uh, of the video game industry. Both are, you know, fine ways to go. I just want to make exceptional games. I don't want to make lots of games. And, uh, and so that decision uh, kind of fueled a lot of important things later to keep the Blizzard quality really high. And, uh, and nothing was uh, acceptable unless it was of the highest quality. And so that's really how Warcraft Adventures, like I came to the team and talked to uh, the guys down south and said, guys, we, we got we to gotta cancel this project. It's just not going well enough. It's just not living up to our standards. And after some reflection, they agreed and they, uh, and, and, and it ended up getting canceled. Well, speaking of exceptional games, I mean, I remember reading reviews at the time that Diablo 1 was like the best video game ever, and then 2 came out and cancelled it and took, took its title. And <laughs> I mean, even after a decade, it was still in the top 10 after release, wasn't it? So, I mean, how did the changes in technology help with that game then? Well, actually, they hurt us more than anything at the very beginning, I think. Uh, the technology, obviously was rapidly evolving at the time and and this was kind of the dawn of the era of like 3D FX video cards, 3D video cards uh and and so a lot of people were converting their games to using uh polygons and uh and and doing 3D art and 3D worlds and and stuff like that. But we wanted a much higher fidelity on our graphics in terms of uh we really wanted them to look uh, better than you could make with 3D stuff. The 3D stuff was pretty rudimentary at the time. 
you know, it was like, let's say, trying to make a tree out of 25 polygons or whatever. <laughs> it just didn't look very good. And uh, and so, uh, you know, if we wanted to have lots of trees in this rich world, we had to stick with sprites. So in some ways, we got kind of dinged when Diablo 2 came out uh, because it wasn't 3D. And we were kind of behind the curve then technology-wise in terms of graphics. That said, I, I thought our graphics looked amazing and they still hold up today. Uh, where I don't think that if we had used, you know, low res polygon stuff, it would, it would be nearly the kind of way that people look at it and remember it fondly now. Uh, so I think that some of the technology hurt us that, that, that part of it was maybe a bit of a hindrance, but there was plenty of other things that, that went our way and was, uh, was really helpful. And mainly it was technology of things like putting, you know, changing Battle.net into a client server model so that we could uh, control the servers and people could play online and we could really curb the cheating. In, in theory, you can eliminate the cheating, but uh, we learned a lot on how not to do it uh, when we were making uh, Diablo 2 and how not to do client-server because we just didn't know any better. It was our first time that we had been doing that. And so there was still cheating, but we were able to kind of plug up a lot of the holes eventually and, uh, and get it to be a, a very kind of cheat-proof environment. Well, my understanding was that uh, the kind of Diablo 1 and 2 team did a build of Diablo 3. Um, I was wondering how much things changed in the development and uh, what kind of caused people to leave Blizzard. Well, that's a a big question. Yes, we were working on Diablo 3 and uh, we were working on it. uh, It was originally designed to be uh, an MMO, but not like an MMO like World of Warcraft or EverQuest or anything like that. I know as soon as you say the words MMO, everybody instantly thinks, oh, it's going to be just like World of Warcraft, but with Diablo characters. But that it was nothing like that. It just means massive multiplayer, meaning lots of people online together, playing together. Uh, so a little bit more like Path of Exile than it is uh, 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 World of Warcraft. So, But it was even more of a uh, of multiple people running around in this world together, uh, you know, all over the lots of people in your particular zone and things like that. So uh, it was still the same Diablo perspective, same Diablo kind of uh, action and 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 whatnot. But it was um, but it was uh, uh, going to be lots thousands of people in the world playing together. Uh, and so we started working on it. It was a 3D game. Uh, it was going to use. 3d graphics and models and stuff and uh and we started work on it and then uh we left we had had a fight with the owners there's a long history of the ownership of of blizzard we had like i had said earlier cuc had bought uh sierra online and davidson associates cuc then merged with this company called hfs to become this company called sendent and sendent was basically the most corrupt <laughs> uh, company in like the history of Wall Street uh, in the in the 90s. Uh, it, it was the Enron of the of the of the 90s, uh, and uh, they had totally fabricated all their books. People went to jail. Like I mean, it was a complete disaster. So that company owned Blizzard Entertainment, and then they sold the thing in kind of a fire sale to a, to a, a French utilities company, a water company called Vivendi. Uh, that had changed from being just a utilities water company to being a uh, – they wanted to be a communication 
a superstar. And so they went out and bought all of these companies, racking up the biggest debt in European corporate history. And, uh, and we just got sucked into this French water company <laughs> and, uh, and they didn't know anything about making video games. And, uh, and so they are trying to, you know, get us to do things that we didn't want to do. And it was just like this constant fight. And, then it like started to go out of business and then they were selling all of their stuff. And so like we were as, as blizzard North, we're having all this success with as blizzard from, uh, Diablo to Starcraft to Warcraft and like things were just going so well for us, but everything above us was just this gigantic disaster. And, uh, and so we were fighting and fighting and fighting all the time with the, with the ownership and, uh, and it's just like I, I eventually it just became a quality of life thing for me. Like I was just so stressed out, so upset on a day to day basis that uh, eventually after trying to work it out for years, decided I just couldn't do this with my life anymore. And I had to, you know, I had to move on. I couldn't really be a part of this kind of environment. It was just not good for me personally, for my health or anything like that. So it was it was kind of time to move on. So we, uh, we left, they ended up getting years later. Now they ended up, you know, Vivendi still owns the whole thing and they, and they ended up being pretty good owners and they ended up working it out, but I just didn't have the stomach to do it. And so we had left and, and made, uh, uh, flagship studios. And that was at the beginning of development of Diablo three. Uh, and then it changed radically, uh, to the way it became when it was Diablo three was released. None of really almost anything was, in fact, I don't think there was a single design thing that was kept in the Diablo three, our Diablo three that was, that was in the final Diablo three besides it being a 3d game. So later on, you went into quite a few companies, actually, you did a flagship and then you got into gazillion as well and, uh, ended up becoming CEO of there. Um, yeah. Most recently, you've kind of joined the uh, indie games revolution, and you've gone back into designing. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. Uh, so I, like you, like you had said, I, I started to be uh, the creative director on Marvel Heroes at Gazillion, uh, and doing basically a, a Marvel Diablo game, and uh, and I was really loving that. But the company that I was working with had all sorts of problems. And, uh, and I kept helping with, you know, solving some of the problems and stuff like that. And people kept noticing and eventually they kept promoting me and eventually I became CEO of the company, <laughs> which is exactly what I didn't want to do. Right. Like I, 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 I keep getting promoted to being the president or CEO <laughs> or whatever. This has happened, happened at Blizzard North. It happened, uh, you know, at flagship studios, it's happened at, at Gazillion. And so I said, okay, that, that's it. I, you know. I, I became CEO. I was CEO for several years, uh, about three or four years. And then, um, I said, okay, that that's it that, uh, you know, I've done the CEO thing, CEO job when you've got hundreds of employees and stuff like that is like, I'm not working on games. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm out talking to investors and, and making presentations and doing all sorts of stuff like that. That isn't game development. And, when I was a kid, I said, you know, what really makes me happy, what really drives me is being creative and working on games. And so I, when I was a kid, I said, I don't, I don't want to grow up to be a CEO. I want to grow up to make games. And so I said, okay, I've, I've done CEO for a while now. The company's in good shape. 
I'm going to, you know, leave and get back to making video games and being a developer rather than uh, than running companies. And and so I left and I started this company called Graybeard Games and said, I'm going to make a small team, you know, five people or something like that, less than 10. And uh, we're going to do a little game. Uh, together and and whatnot, and so I, I started working on some prototypes and some ideas that I have. I always have like eight different ideas, but I really kind of tested different theories out and tried different ones, and I really settled one on one that I liked a lot, uh, and uh, and started working on it and realized that uh, that it was too big of a game. I had come from making all of these different projects with many different people. And, uh, and so here I was like, well, this is too big of a game for a, uh, for a little indie dev company. Uh, so I had to kind of like take a break and take a step back and think about how to make a game with just a few people. But the more I did that, the more that I talked to some of my friends and things like that and realized that, you know, maybe 10 was too big. We could probably do this with like five people even better, right? Because then, you know, the larger it is, the less chance I have of actually doing the work. So let's, let's think in the three to five range. And I started talking to even more people and realized, you know, I, I think I can do this with just myself and an artist. So I started working on, uh, on some stuff and I started making, you know, if we did a retro style pixel art thing, then, uh, I might be able to, uh, you know, just get away with myself and, and an artist. So I started working on it and I started making some prototypes and, I started working on my pixel art and I was like, you know, I think I can do this all by myself. And uh, so I've gone from the extreme of being CEO of a company <laughs> with hundreds of employees to making a game by myself, uh, which is what I'm doing right now with a game called It Lurks Below. And, uh, and it's just myself. I'm doing the art. I'm doing the music. I'm doing the, the programming, the design. I'm doing it all. Uh, community efforts, everything. Uh, and I'm really, really enjoying myself. Well, it looks below is available on early access on Steam right now, um, and it looks fantastic. I mean, I'm just looking through some of the features that are in here as well. What, what's kind of been the feedback from gamers and the community so far on it? Oh, so far the feedback has been incredibly positive. Uh, people are very addicted to the game already. It's basically the, it is Diablo from the side, so uh, it's kind of a side view Diablo. So it's got a little bit of like a kind of terraria mining you know whatever minecraft terraria kind of style to it and that you're doing some mining and and crafting and stuff like that but mainly it's you know a dungeon filled with monsters you're down there you're fighting the monsters you're getting random loot you're uh, you know changing out your items there's uniques and different rarities of items and rune words and like all these kind of things so it, it's got a little bit of that uh, a little bit of the kind of a survival features it's got some farming and crafting and things like that but mainly it's it plays and feels and uh, very much like Diablo uh, it's very action oriented and there's uh, lots of randomness associated with random dungeons and random monsters random items and all that kind of stuff so you can play over and over again and there are many people in the in the early access that have 300 plus hours of, of playtime already and uh, so uh, people can get quite addicted to it and are having a really good time well, I think everyone that's listening will want to try It Looks Below. So I'll put a link in our show notes if uh, people want to get access to the, the early access on Steam. And David, it's been wonderful getting these stories as well. It's just great to hear that you're back to doing what you love as well. So thank you for so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It was, it was a lot of fun.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.